Good morning, Four Oaks. Um, if you had not had a chance to, to meet you or you, me, I'm Paul Gilbert, and lead pastor here. So glad that you are, are with us. Not sure what your holiday travel plans are. If you're staying put, you can thank the good Lord for that. Um, but for some of us who are, are getting on the road, we're, the Gilberts are actually making um, our trek up to Tennessee, going through Atlanta, to Chattanooga, to Nashville, to Jackson, um, miraculously missing the state of Alabama, which we try to do at all seasons of, of, of our existence. Now, if you're from Alabama, we, we love you. We just won't live in your state. But anyway, just, just having fun here. Hey, but, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, if you're, if you're like us, you're trying to figure out how to endure 10 hours in the van, 10 hours that is a goat rodeo. And, and we've been busily searching for, for audio books and, and anything, anything to kind of break up the time and the monotony and promote Christmas cheer in the van. But, but it was interesting. I, I was perusing the other day and found a Christian podcast. Actually, my wife Susan found it, forwarded it to me. And it's by, it's by John MacArthur. And I, I really do recommend it. He preached a sermon about 40 years ago called The People Who Missed Christmas. And in it, he sort of did a profile of, of all the, the major characters in the Christian story who sort of missed what was going on right before them. Herod, the religious leaders, the people of Jerusalem, the innkeeper. And it was, it was fascinating for him to kind of unpack what about their posture led them towards missing what was happening right before their very eyes. This really gave me the idea what if we spent this morning and then some time on Christmas Eve tomorrow night looking at the people who didn't miss Christmas? Those few in that ancient story 2,000 years ago who were actually able to see, spiritually speaking, what was going on. And so that's where we're heading. We're entitling this The Seven Who Saw the Savior. And we're going to look at three of those folks this morning and, and the rest tomorrow night. And the first three are going to be, of course, Joseph and Mary and Elizabeth. And we're going to be in several passages, so just kind of stay where you are, stay put. We're going to be flipping back and forth a little bit. We're going to look first at Joseph, who I always deem the Rodney Dangerfield of the Christmas story, right? No, no respect. But what we're going to learn from Joseph is the far underrated virtue of Christian obedience. So listen, Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, engagement for us culturally has come to mean an entirely different thing from what has traditionally been known about this season of life. Typically, an engagement was a short time to plan a wedding. Culturally now, engagement is a indefinite, suspended amount of time where you try to figure out what's going on in your life. Um, and it's important that we, under, that we not import our experience culturally of engagement in this day and age to what's happening here. Because when it says that Mary and Joseph were engaged, or as it, as it says here, betrothed, that was a super big deal in Jewish culture. This was not a time to, to just plan the wedding and figure out if you're meant to be together and those sorts of things. This was actually a legally binding agreement entered into by two families. And during this season, it was such a serious commitment that you still were sort of designated as husband and wife, even though, as we can see here, they did not yet live together. They were not yet living as husband and wife. And the reason for this is that this was a time of testing. It was first to see, can the man provide for his wife? Can he move out of his parents' basement and stop playing Xbox? And he who has ears to ear, let him hear, right? But it was also the time for the wife to prove that she was faithful, that she was betrothed to one and one only. So when it says in verse 18, look there, that Mary was found to be with child, that is like the shot heard round the village. The, the idea is that her pregnancy was somehow discovered. Um, kind of like that picture of a daytime TV show where they reveal the DNA test and you find out that you are, quote, unquote, not the father, right? So th this is Joseph's experience. And we don't know how he found out. We don't know if Mary came to him. I actually have a theory, and it's not thus saith the Lord, but interestingly in Luke, in the account of, of Mary, we're going to look at this shortly. If you flip over to Luke chapter 1 just for a second. In Luke 1, 56, after it says, after Mary found out that she was with child, it says that she went to the hills of Judea to spend it with her cousin Elizabeth. Now look at verse 56. This is interesting. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Can you imagine Joseph? He's out by the road looking out for Mary his one and only, his betrothed, she's so, she's so lovely, she's coming down the way. Oh, Mary has a bump on her tummy, okay? Can you imagine Joseph sort of having this response? Did they speak? Did they argue? Did, did she tell him the story? I don't know. I just have this picture of, her, of, her, of him seeing her, seeing this bump on her tummy, knowing that it was, he was not the father, and him being absolutely devastated. And it says here that he promptly resolved to put her aside, to divorce her. Now, we have to ask why he was doing this. And it, it, it's interesting. Matthew tells us that, in fact, he was doing this because he was a just man. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Guys, out of wedlock pregnancies in ancient theocratic Israel were a huge transgression against God. 
Deuteronomy was very clear what would happen. There would be a trial that would be commenced and there would be witnesses brought forth and, and accusations made and if found guilty by two or three witnesses, in fact, this woman would be put to death by stoning. And Joseph, it seemed, could not bring himself to do this. He loved her. He was just. He cherished her. This was his only beloved. He was, he was crushed. And so it says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. See, there's also a stipulation in Deuteronomy which gave permission for divorce in certain situations. A man could issue a certificate of divorce. And here, we have this idea, as it says in the text, that Joseph is considering these things. What, 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 this idea is that he is just absolutely weighed down with what to do. He wants to be obedient to God. And he's weighing this part of Deuteronomy and this part of Deuteronomy. And his, his soul is unsettled. And, and he, he'll do whatever God wants him to do. He just wants to know what is that thing. And it says at that point, the angel shows up and told him what this was all about. And there's, there's three things about Joseph's response that we can learn about obedience and how God uses it. Okay, and here are the three things. Number one, Joseph's obedience was immediate. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He didn't sort of kind of scratch his head and did, did God really say? And I'm not really clear about the way the exegetical nuances of Deuteronomy 6 mesh with what the angel, you know, he didn't do any of that. It says he did. Verse 24, he took. I mean, he acted upon, he moved forward in obedience. So his obedience was immediate. Number two, his obedience was costly. Now, you say, why do you say that? They weren't married yet. And when it says that he took Mary, his wife, they didn't have like an impromptu shotgun wedding. That's, that's not how it worked. In fact, we read from Luke, up until the time that Mary gave birth, they were still betrothed. When it says it took, he took her as his wife, it meant that he publicly identified with her. He, he, he appeared in public with her. He brought her to the store. They visited family and friends together. And this would have been nothing but absolutely, a, a, just an absolute scandal. Because people would have assumed, well, look at that. Look at Joseph. Can you, can you believe that? Can you believe what Joseph did? Can you believe what Mary did? And they're not even getting married? Can you, there, 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 there were just all this sort of shame, misunderstanding. Think about when they went to Bethlehem. Now, you got to understand, when they went to Bethlehem for the census, this would be where the, all the old friends and relatives would show up. You know, when you're doing Christmas this year or you're traveling and like those folks that you haven't seen for six months or six years and the first thing they tell you is just put a little weight on there. And, you know, it, that, that's what they're walking into. And, and Joseph can't explain. It's impossible. See, sometimes obedience is very costly. Sometimes obedience is not easily explained. The third thing that we see about Joseph, in his response, is that his obedience was worship. Now look at, the, look at the little note there when it says he knew her not. What does that mean? It, says, it just means they were not sexually intimate. 
until after the birth of the baby. And we have to ask, why not? What, what did they have to lose, right? Who was going to know? The deed was already done. People already assumed the worst about them anyway. Why didn't just Joseph, I mean, come on. I mean, Joseph, Mary, you're going through a hard time. You've got to travel across the country and all this scorn. Just, just I mean, who's going to know? Who's going to care? What have you got to lose? No one would have known except whom? God. See, it says obedience is an act of worship. Let me just say that of all the Christian virtues, particularly for this day and age, I think obedience is the one that is the most underrated. See, we, we love to, to see them across those passages which talk about without holiness, no one will see the Lord and call them legalism. Look at passages like 1 Corinthians 6 when it says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. We love to blow past those passages, but those passages mean something. They have teeth. They're a part of our worship to God. But practically speaking, let me say this, obedience is also a grace to you. Obedience is a blessing to you. Obedience has the capacity to cover over a very difficult situation in which there is already a multitude of sins. Let me just give you an example. You might be contemplating a Christmas visit this year where there has been ongoing conflict, tension, or maybe estrangement between friends and relatives. And these are folks that you might see once a year, once every two years. You're dreading it. There's unresolved issues. And maybe, just maybe, none of it's your fault. That's highly doubtful. But maybe, maybe none of it's your fault. Yet, it's been made worse because of maybe your own sinful responses. Maybe you've held grudges. Maybe you've been bitter. Maybe you've returned evil for evil. Maybe you know, have known that God is calling you to a particular thing. That you need to go and reconcile with that person that you need to go have a cup of coffee with that person or talk to that person or have some sort of resolution with that person or at least a a conversation, but you've you've been resisting it. It's too hard. It's too costly. I'll be misunderstood. See, obedience might be hard in that situation, but disobedience has made it far worse. See, life is full of fires that we're constantly having to address and put out, right? But disobedience takes what is a normal garden variety fire and just dumps a ton of jet fuel right on top of it. And sometimes, doesn't mean that obedience fixes all of our problems. That's, That's not the point. That's not the case. Oftentimes, obedience will make it more costly and harder. But some of the things that we oftentimes experience, the difficulties... The, the relational tensions, the, the, the disrupt and issues in our life are, are a direct result of God has just simply said, be obedient in this way and trust me. Just walk in faith and, and do this thing. See, Joseph's obedience, please hear this, made his life in many ways much more difficult. But he was able to receive from God exactly what, one, what God wanted to do in and through 
him and his obedience. And that was to be a blessing. See, sometimes we, we, we forget that. We make our obedience about how it's going to impact us. Just think about this. How will your obedience bless someone this season? See, Joseph's obedience blessed Mary. Hard enough situation. Joseph could have run. Joseph could have lied. Joseph could have hidden. Joseph could have done a hundred things that would have made a hard situation just almost insufferable. But he didn't. How might God use your obedience this season to be a blessing, to cover over a multitude of sins, and to see God do a work of grace in your heart through Christ, just like he did Joseph. That's Joseph. Number two, let's look at Mary. Now, what we want to learn from Mary is something that's implicit with Joseph, but it is explicit in her, in his, in her story all over the place, and that's her humility. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, as depending on your church background, as Protestants, we oftentimes get nervous when we think about honoring Mary. And, and let me say up front, there, there is a wrong way to honor and study Mary. Mariology or the worship of Mary or praying to Mary or venerating Mary or building a little icon or tiki statue to Mary. All of those things, as egregious as they are, they, they really come from a misunderstanding of what the angel says in verse 28 here. See, the angel, angel says, Greetings, O favored one. Now, you may have heard that interpreted in the form of a prayer as what? Hail Mary, what? Full of grace. And in that idea, Mary then becomes the dispenser of grace. Mary becomes a mediator between us and God. Because Mary is now full of grace and the favored one, she is free to dispense that grace to us. Now, there are several issues with that, but one just comes directly from the text. That's not a good translation. 
Hail Mary, full of grace. Actually, verse 28 says, hello, favored one. In other words, not one who dispenses grace, but one who has received grace. See, by definition, if you are one who has received grace, you are what? A sinner. You are broken. All of us stand in need this morning of receiving the favor and the grace of God. We know from the writer of Hebrews that there is only one mediator between God and man this morning. That is whom? Jesus Christ. And so to, to, to position Mary in a place that she shouldn't be is wrong, unhealthy, and spiritually disastrous. Yet, yet, Protestant evangelical church, her story is here. And her story is here so that we can learn something from her. Now, when Gabriel makes this pronouncement that she is the favored one, he tells her why she is favored. She gets the grace of God's blessing. Now, look back at the text. I mean, this is not just any baby. You have found favor, Mary. And look at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. shall call his name Jesus. Okay, now, listen to this. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Imagine ladies going into the ultrasound tech and getting that printout, right? Whoa. That is some heady stuff. That's some stuff in our day and age to praise God for, right? That's some stuff in our day and age to post on social media. And to say, hey, listen to what just happened. Pray, pray for me. Okay, pray for me about this amazing blessing that God has, has given me. That's not Mary's response. Look at verse 34. How will this be? Literally, in other words, me? You have got to be kidding. I'm a 14 or 15-year-old girl from the backwoods of Nazareth. I'm just here minding my own business. Me? God, what, what about me? She emphasizes this in verse 38 when she says, I am just a what? Servant. Now, the word for servant there is what? You should know this from John, is doulos, which means what? Slave. Gabriel, I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. But... Because you've said so, verse 38, let it be according to your word. Let me ask you a question, and, and because we want to get under obedience. Does that make sense? We're, we're saying that God provides blessing through obedience. It's not legalism. It's actually a grace to others. It's a grace to our own hearts. But what's underneath obedience? What fuels obedience? See, disobedience in actuality, is pride. It comes when you and I say, you know what? God, I know you said this, but I think I know better than you what will make me happy. I, I, I know you said to be, to be pure in my dating relationship, but I can't flourish that way. I've got to be free to express myself. God, I know you said to, to remain married to this person who's very hard and very difficult to love. 
But I just think, God, I could be happier outside of this covenant I've made. I think I would be much more fulfilled with someone else or free on my own to do my own thing. God, I know you, I know you said not to be unequally yoked, but you just, this non-Christian boy or this non-Christian girl is just totally unique. You wouldn't understand, God. I know what's best for me. Now, we may never say it just like that. But that's the subtext always for Christian disobedience. Do you want to know what the key mark of humility is, biblically? Tim Keller said this, I think it's really right on. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. You're just not the, you're not the hero of the story. You're not the center of the, of, the, of the tweet or the Facebook post. You're, the key mark of humility is accepting God's word and obeying it and saying, even though it doesn't make a ton of sense right now, God, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to trust you, even if I don't understand. See, we're, we're under that deception, even as believers, that the way to lift ourselves up, the way to flourish, sometimes will mean that we have to do mm, questionable things. The Bible doesn't call them questionable, he calls them disobedient. It's the direct opposite of what the Bible says is the path to true joy. What does Peter say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will do what? Lift you up. See, Mary's humility allowed her to be a conduit of God's grace through Jesus Christ, and ultimately to the world. So we can learn humility from Mary to be able to entrust God, to have faith, to walk in obedience, knowing that He, even when we don't understand, or, or, or just are like Peter, Lord, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Mary is 14 years old. God met her there, and she says, let it be. Let it be. Final portrait, and we're, we're going to be done for this morning to continue tomorrow night. We're going to look just briefly at Elizabeth, often the, one of the forgotten characters of the Christmas story. And what do we have to learn from her? We have to learn from her gratitude. Luke 1, verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We didn't read it, but... If you're familiar with the story, you know that it was just a chapter earlier than this that Zechariah and Elizabeth got the news of all news. 
they were in their old age, past childbearing age. And the angel appeared to Zechariah and said, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And this son is not just going to be any son. This son is going to be the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist. This this son is going to prepare the way for the Lord. This son, Elizabeth, you can imagine her thinking, is going to put her in 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 the annals of faith, right up there with Hannah and Samuel, right up there with Sarah and Isaac. I mean, she is a blessed woman. And you can imagine that she's sitting there in the hill country of Judea waiting for Mary to come so that she can tell Mary her big news. And what does Mary do? Goes and ruins all the happiness of Elizabeth, right? So Mary, com- so Mary comes in. It says that her, I mean, we don't know how all these things exactly work, but something in the spirit, John the Baptist gets excited Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. She, she understands what's happening, that Mary's pregnant, and we don't know how all this sort of, sort of comes together. But at that moment, I think Elizabeth's response here is a little underrated as well. See, it could have been very easy for her to play Jan Brady to Marcia, right? Mary, Mary, Mary. Could have been easy for her to be envious, dismissive, played the age card with her, compared herself to her, put her down in some way. Miss, you know, Mary, you, you've, surely you and Joseph have been messing around. There's no way this kind of awesomeness happened to you like it's happened to me. Could have responded in any number of ways. But what does she say? Blessed are you. Blessed is your baby. Now listen to this. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the, Lord, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do, do you see her, her attitude, her posture of not just humility, but of gratefulness, of thankfulness? See, if, if things were just, if things were fair, Elizabeth would still be barren. She recognizes the grace of God when the grace of God appears. She celebrates the grace of God in someone else's life. And because of that, and this is what we can learn, her gratitude, her gratitude, her thankfulness, enables her to receive the blessing that is to come to her through her on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question for us. Maybe you're feeling distant from God this season. Maybe you're feeling bitter. Maybe you're not feeling super thankful. One way you can kind of measure your gratitude meter this Christmas, and it really comes out at Christmas, doesn't it? How do you respond to the successes of others? Do you celebrate them? Or do you secretly envy them? Do you secretly want someone else's life, someone else's stuff, someone else's experiences? Erroneously thinking, if I just had that, then I would be grateful, then I would be thankful. Guys, what a model 
Elizabeth is for us. Mary has just like, Mary has had the drop the microphone moment, don't you see? Mary's, Mary has had the trump card. Elizabeth's accomplishment is, is, in an earthly sense, fading. But yet she gives thanks and gratitude to God. And here's what we learned from this. See, gratitude greases the skids of our hearts to receive the blessing that God wants to give not only us, but to give others through us. Can you imagine if she was like, no, Mary, you have no place to stay. No, Mary, this is my time. I'm like six months ahead of you, and you have your time in the sun. This is my time. But because of her posture of thankfulness and gratitude, God empowered Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth is 70-something probably. Mary is a 14-year-old girl. And God gives Elizabeth grace through gratitude to love and to care for her cousin. What about you this season? Would you say as you're entering the the thrust of the holiday that God has given you a, a heart of gratitude? a heart of thankfulness, a heart of, a heart of grace. Forget, is that the case for you? Or maybe you're like me, maybe you're like a lot of us, you've forgotten the greatest gift that God has given us. And this is not preacher talk. This is not spiritual hyperbole. It is truly the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your greatest gift, my greatest gift and we simply remind ourselves, just like Mary, just like Elizabeth, we're just servants. We don't deserve anything. But by your grace, you bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. So this morning, how is your obedient, humble, and grateful heart? Well, if you find yourself coming up short as I do, or more than coming up short, Remember, there's a reason Jesus had to come in the first place. And that's because you were not grateful, you were not humble, and you were not obedient. And neither am I. That's why Jesus came not to give us pretty postcards. Jesus came to die a sinner's death on a cross so that you and I might have life. And in the meantime... Let's pray that God would give us the grace to emulate these saints by the power of his spirit so that we can receive his grace and dispense his grace to those around us. Let's pray.